Galatians chapter 4. It's remarkable to me how timely God's Word is. And how absolutely relevant, without going to search and find, you know, without using Strong's Concordance or some kind of a word search to find, you know, what does the Word say about this or that or the other, but just going through the study of the Word and discovering God answering questions we have before we even ask Him. Well, this is a timely study for us. I'm still thinking about the Women's March on Washington, D.C. and across the country. And and I have to address this, and and stay with me on this. It's not to get political, and it's not to give Rick's news commentary on what's happening. Uh, But for the topic tonight, it couldn't have been more timely, so I want to throw out a a thank you to the women who marched. But here's the thing. I, I can't even, with decency or sensitivity tell you the name that's been thrown out there or chosen for this movement, as, as some are calling it, that the, the Women's March was. Uh, you may know what that name is, I'm not going to speak it, but it crudely defines women based on the very thing women's rights movements have historically fought against. Anatomy. A woman being considered simply for physicality and nothing else. Now, ladies, doesn't that kind of bug you? If I was a woman, that would bug me. Don't look at me just in the flesh. I have more to offer than how I look. Now, I get that all the time. I have to tell people, look, I've got more to offer than how I look. (laughs) But what it comes down to, and we began talking about this, truly we stumbled into this. It comes down to identity. What is your identity? Does my gender... Define me? Male, female, trans, fluid? Is that really what people want to be their their self-definition? Has sexual biology or expression or behavior really come to distinguish who we are as people? I think God created us for more than that. And yet, people are in these last days dialing down to the most base example of identity. And Sunday we began to talk about this, that the identity marker of God's people is none of those things. What is it? Do you remember? What is the identity marker of God's people? Were you here Sunday? I'll give you a hint. It rhymes with spirit. The identity marker of God... Let's just go back. Chapter 3. In verse 3 where he says, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Look, the identity marker of God's people is His Spirit. That is what identifies us as unique, as different. But listen, this is so huge. His Spirit in me, His Spirit upon me so intimately that I now can use, as we talked about, the very language of Jesus. I get to say, Abba, Father. Abba. Because I am identified now as as one belonging to Him, as one filled literally with the Spirit of His Son. So the identity marker of a follower of Jesus is the Spirit of God 
So then, if that is the case, then what is that identity? Galatians 3.26, you are all, listen ladies and men, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And that has nothing to do with gender. You are all sons of God. The ultimate answer to identity for all people of all race or class or gender in Jesus Christ is sonship. I'm a son. I, I want to be identified as a son, as an heir belonging to God. And that is the deeply personal identity that emerges now in this, really the second part of the doctrinal section of the letter to the churches in Galatia. Chapter 4, he's now going to get into this aspect of grace doctrine, and it's remarkable. Verse 1, he says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave. Although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, Paul writes, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. Now, the word child there, when I was a child, or Paul says, as long as an heir is a child, well, a child is the word napios. And napi- I'm going to give you a bunch of Greek words tonight, so buckle up for this. But napios means untaught, unskilled. Okay, it's not even the typical word for child in the Greek, but it's literally one who is immature, untaught, unskilled, not really prepared for the world, and so under guardianship, under watch, under care, under management, literally. And Paul uses childhood under authority as a picture of life under the law. And that's what he's going to begin to paint for us as we go through the chapter. Life under the law before Christ is like being a child of the house, though an heir, though technically an owner of all things belonging to the father in the house, still a child and under guardianship. And he uses three words to describe this. Three words literally for the law. The first one was back in chapter 3, and it's tutor. The law is a tutor. That, as Paul said, brings us to Christ. The word for tutor, I I love the word, I wish we used it more often in English now, it's pedagogos. Pedagogue. A a pedagogue is a schoolmaster or a schoolmarm. It's kind of an ancient word now, at least in the English language. We don't talk about our teachers as pedagogues, but that's what they are and that's what the word means. A tutor. The second word in chapter 4 verse 2 is guardian. Epitropus. Epitropus means well, epi means upon, and tropus means direction. So it's, it's someone who is uh, bringing on direction. It's a guide, a manager specifically of children, an epitropus. And he says the law was like that, like a child's manager, a manager of the household children. And then there's the other word, which is manager in verse 2. So he uses guardians, managers, and tutors. Manager is the word oikonomos which means steward of the house. But in this case, specifically a steward of a household with children, so a nanny. Or if it's a male, a manny, I guess, I don't know. (laughs) So a steward of the house, a, a guardian of the children, and a pedagogue, these are all descriptive words that Paul uses for the law. And talking about Israel and those under the law, he said that's what it was like for us. 
We were like kids in the house. We had an inheritance. We had a promise. But we were under this guardianship. And Paul describes the law that way. A managing guardian pedagogue. But listen, there's a catch-22 here. Most children at one time or another just want to grow up. I can't wait till I'm adult and I can get out of here and I can do my own thing. Seen from home alone. You know? When, when Kevin McAllister is yelling at his mom, when I grow up I'm, and get married, I'm living alone. You know, and then when he finds out that he is alone, remember he's sitting there and he's got this pile of ice cream and he's watching this, uh, the movie I think it's called Angels with Filthy Souls, and he says, hey guys, I'm eating junk and watching rubbish, you better come out and stop me. You know, the, the, the kids dream to just do whatever I want, to grow up and do whatever I want, well you adults we know better. Because suddenly you grow up and you're not doing whatever you want. Kids think that. You know, since, since 2008, beginning with my oldest son, Corey, my kids have been turning 18. Inevitably. You know, four now of my six have turned 18. And one by one, crossing that line, they have discovered three things about turning 18 that they all look so forward to. Number one, they can vote. Number two, they can sign up for selective service. And number three, they can be tried as an adult. (laughs) Happy 18th birthday. It's not what we thought. Here's the catch-22. Good Jewish boys and girls are raised under parental guardianship until they are bar mitzvahed. Okay, so they're under that, that, and I'm talking the child example, we're not getting quite to the law yet, but they're under that guardianship, they're children, but then they're bar mitzvahed, and a 13-year-old boy, after being bar mitzvahed, is thought to be now a young man. He's now come into his own. 13. I don't know who decided on that age. Then there's also, for girls, it's the bat mitzvah. What's interesting, does anyone know what that actually means? Bar mitzvah? Bar means son of, mitzvah, the commandments. You come of age at age 13 and you personally become responsible to the law, the whole law, and nothing but the law. The perfect law of God. You are under your parents. I can't wait till I'm an adult. So you become an adult, and now you are under the long arm of the law, buddy. Bar Mitzvah, son of the commandments, and this is a perfect law that no one could keep. Catch 22. Can't wait till I'm an adult. Then you become an adult, and suddenly law kicks in. I never once got a traffic ticket when I was a child. I got busted for all kinds of other things, but not that, you know? And even an adult in, or a Jewish heir of a house, technically the adult Jewish heir, you know, the child now gets the inheritance and, and may have riches and wealth and everything that came with the inheritance, but even that person is still a son of the commandment, still under the guardianship of the law. No freedom, no grace, no way out. And Paul is making a simple point that before Jesus came, The only good guardian in the world was the flawlessly overbearing law of Moses. Kind of sounds like a no way out scenario. I'm under my parents, and then I'm under the law. I'm always under something. Where is the freedom in that? 
And verse 4, Paul says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. God sent forth His Son. Why? Because God so loved the world. Right? And and He says that He sent forth His Son, born of a woman. That's interesting. Paul doesn't say, born of a man and a woman. Because He wasn't. He was born of a woman by the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth is implied here. Isaiah 7.14 prophesied, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. Matthew tells us, God with us. So, born of a woman, and born under law. See, the timing was perfect. He had to be born under the law to redeem from the law. Had he been born pre-law, then people could say, well, what does he have to do with the law? Had he been born post-law, then what does he have to do with the law? No, Jesus came in while the law was still completely and fully in effect so that he himself could keep that perfect law and therefore, in his sacrifice, redeem us from it. Now, you know this. But Paul also says he came in the fullness of the time. And I just, I love that phrase. Because it speaks of the perfection of God's timing. If you ever wonder what God's doing in your life and why something isn't happening when you want it to happen or how you want it to happen and, and you're looking at the calendar or you're looking at your watch and it's just not happening in your time, understand God knows how to work in the fullness of the time. He's never late. He's never early. In fact, he can't be. He's the great I am, which means he's right now. Look at, you know, one second goes by and you haven't missed God. He's still right there. I am. In the fullness of the time, the coming of Jesus filled up that fullness. Everything that needed to be fulfilled was in that first coming of Jesus. All the prophecies of those of that coming, all the preparation for that coming, in the fullness of the time. Not a moment too soon and not a moment too late. Genesis 49 verse 10. Old Jacob, on his deathbed, made that prophecy, that stunning prophecy. How could he possibly have known? And he didn't. When he said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So there was a sense, and the old rabbis taught this, and you can go back and read this, that that there was going to be a coming. They believed Shiloh was Messiah. Shiloh from, from Shalom, meaning peace. That, that there's going to be one who comes. And... All the way up until he comes, there's going to be sovereignty in Israel. There's going to be self-rule, self-government until he comes. So we're going to be fine until Messiah shows up. And then when he does, he will take all rule and authority over the entire earth. And so they looked forward to that. And it was a sad, sad end to Passover that year. When Rome removed the last vestige of Jewish self-rule, they took away the right of capital punishment. That, that kind of is the final straw, you know, of, of ultimate self-governing authority of a nation, of a people. 
And Rome said, no more, Israel. You no longer have that right. They withdrew capital punishment. And as you know the story, some of you, as the rabbis were weeping in the street, a pre-bar mitzvahed boy of 12 sat in the temple, amazing the teachers of the law with his knowledge, with his understanding. Luke 2.47 talks about that. And his name was Yeshua. And Shiloh had come in the fullness of the time. Right in the nick of time. It speaks of God's prophetic calendar. Jesus had to come, was scheduled to arrive before the law became defunct. And it did. You know that, don't you? That the law is no longer in effect, can no longer be in effect, because it can no longer be upheld at all since the Roman destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70. Once that happened, understand this, get this. This is what I would call a bar mitzvah bummer. That from that moment forward, 70 AD forward, the destruction of the temple forward, no son or daughter of the commandments has been able to keep the law. No matter how hard they try. Now you might say, okay, but Rick, I didn't think anybody could keep the law anyway. Exactly. Which is why they had the sacrificial system. Which is why, though, you couldn't keep the law perfectly, at least once a year you could go up to Jerusalem for Yom Kippur. At least you could bring your sin offerings and your burnt offerings and your peace offerings to the Lord. You could bring your guilt offerings. All of the offerings referred to in Leviticus 1 through 5. And so God provided a way that though the Jewish people could not keep the law, they could keep clean before Him or at least be covered for their sin by the sacrificial system. But once the temple went down, burned to the ground, so the law went down in flames. You can't even try to keep it anymore. Because one mess up, one flaw, one law overlooked or or not seen, you're done. And you can't offer sacrifice for it. And so Judaism today, that is, right now, that is the great tragedy. That none can even keep the law through the sacrifice. Jesus came before that ended. But he had also already resurrected before it ended. He had also already, well, been uh, cut off and killed and then resurrected. And, and one other thing had happened that is so vital to know the Holy Spirit had already been given before the temple went down. Not after. There, you realize there was never a time that God did not provide for covering. Ever. Jesus came. He lived. He died. He resurrected. He sent the Holy Spirit. The church was born. The Spirit now in the world. People could not only be covered from their sin, but completely redeemed from their sin before the Jerusalem temple burned down and before the opportunity of sacrifice was gone. That is God taking care of people in the fullness of the time. It's amazing. In the fullness of time, the adoption was paid for. Redemption was made. Our adoption as sons. Every one of us. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And any of you gals who have struggled with this, man, these verses are for you as well as for me. 
And I would, I would caution you against taking any scripture and going, oh, that's just for the guys. Unless it very specifically says, I want men everywhere holding up holy hands in prayer. Okay, that's, that's pretty obviously to the guys. Because then he's going to talk to the women. We'll get to that another time. But when he says you are all sons, all are sons through faith in Jesus Christ, he is talking about everyone. It's not just a male promise. It's not a gender thing. Paul's getting after it here. But understand this, that when he says, Abba, Father, that's something only a son can say. How does it feel? How does it feel to say Abba? Remember we talked about that Sunday. A, a litmus test I gave you for, for just testing it. Is the, is the Spirit in me? Say Abba. You say Abba and, and you have a sense of the, of the Father love of God. His Spirit's there doing that. Giving you the sonship, the Spirit of sonship to be able to speak the word Abba. You know what's interesting? This is Jesus' word. But it's only recorded one time as used by Jesus. The one time is in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus, under such extreme pain and anguish, bleeding from His temple, pouring out His heart, said, Abba, Father, take this cup from Me, yet not as I will, but as You will. That's the only recorded time. Now, I think Jesus said Abba a whole lot more than that. I think when He was alone in His early morning prayers, His late night prayers, His daily prayers, I think every time He prayed, it's, it's more than likely He was just saying Abba. Because He had that relationship with the Father. But this is interesting to me. With the Abba issue, if we can call it that, when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, He did not teach them to say Abba. He said, when you pray, pray this way, our Father who is in heaven. The word Father in the Greek there is pater. Well, but, but Jesus spoke Aramaic, so maybe He said Abba. Maybe He did. But the Gospel writers inspired by the Holy Spirit tell us the word pater, which is a little more distant than Abba. It's like saying Father rather than Dad. When I said Father to my dad, I was serious. Father, you know, just like when he said, Richard... <laughs> yes, Father. <laughs> but Dad, Daddy, Papa, Abba, that, that's a different thing. Jesus taught His disciples to pray, first by saying, Our Father who's in heaven, holy is Your name. And you know the rest of the prayer. Why did He teach them that? Why did He not just teach them to say Abba right then? Because the Spirit of the Son had yet to be given to us. We didn't yet have the Spirit of Sonship. The Holy Spirit hadn't come. So before the Holy Spirit came, the closest we could get to God was Father. But when the Spirit comes, we are given the Spirit of Sonship, and now it's Abba. Now I'm close to the Father as my Dad, as my Abba. And that intimacy comes by the Spirit of the living God. Not a pedagogical guardianship, but it's Sonship now. Again, sonship for men and for women. Why? Because it's not just you approaching God, it is Christ in you. That's the Spirit of the Son. We've been given the Spirit of the Son. I I mention this from time to time, and maybe you're used to this now, I hope you are, but the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. 
is the Spirit of God, is the Spirit of the Lord, is the Holy Spirit, is the Comforter. Every reference to the Spirit of God refers to the very Spirit of Jesus Christ Himself as well as the Spirit of the Father. So when I say I have been given the Spirit of Sonship or the Spirit of the Son, this is the Spirit of Jesus residing in me, allowing me to verbalize, to vocalize, just as He would, Abba. Abba, Father. I speak the language of Jesus. And that is sonship. And it's for everyone. So, here we go. Ladies, sisters, especially, listen up. Look back again at chapter 3, verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Again, it is not about gender rights. That's what our world does, but our world's functioning in the flesh. It's not even about male or female roles in the body of Christ. We have those. This is about positional sonship. And whether you're a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl in Christ Jesus, we all have positional sonship. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And that is something no woman in Israel ever had. With five exceptions. Five exceptions. Yeah. Their names were Mala, Noah, Chagla, Poor girl. Milka. Well, you got to have Milka if you have Hagwa, I guess. These are farm girls. And Terza. Mala, Noah, Hagwa, Milka, and Terza. Turn in your Bibles back to Numbers 27. Numbers chapter 27. Numbers 27, verse 1. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book, 27th chapter, first verse. Then the daughters of Zelophehad, first of all, a cool name. The daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, <laughs> the son of Gilead, the son of... You, you know I'm not making this stuff up. The son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph came near. And these are their names, the names of his daughters. Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They stood before Moses... And before Eliezer the priest, and before the leaders, and all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And they were saying, Our father died in the wilderness, and yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died in his own sin. So he wasn't one of the rebellious group, he just died. Okay? Died in his own sin, and he had no sons. And so the five girls, smart girls, they say, Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought the case before the Lord. He didn't know what to do. See, the inheritance always went to the son. And these are five daughters. But there wasn't a son in the family. God's system was, it was not so that the women be put down. It was so the women would be protected and cared for and looked after, which no other culture did. 
And so God had it set up that there would be an inheritance passed down generation to generation, father to firstborn son, who then would take care of the family until he died, and it would be passed on to the next firstborn, who would take care of the family, son to son to son to son to son. And now you got five daughters and no sons, and these five daughters would have lost their inheritance. Or the inheritance that would have come to them through a son if there had been a son. And so they say, Moses, what do we do? And he's like, <laughs> I'm going to talk to God about this one. Verse 6, And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. In their statements, you shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them, and it had never been done before. Verse 8, Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and he has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. What is the point of that wonderful little story? Well, simply put, it's God's perfect care. It's that God cares for His daughters as much as for His sons, and He's not going to let them slip through the cracks. So He took care of the daughters of Zelophehad, and He promised then from then on out, if there ever was a situation without a son, that He would take care of the daughters. He is still doing it, because the story of Zelophehad's daughters is a wonderful foreshadowing of a son who would die that we might all be sons. Not sons and daughters. No, the son gave up his life so that we could all be sons. And as chapter 4, verse 7 says back in Galatians, and if sons, then heirs through God, ladies, you have your inheritance. Not through me. Not via a husband or a firstborn son. You have your inheritance through the son who died for you. And now you are sons. Positional sonship. The same rights and privileges of all the sons with all the daughters. And we come together in faith as the sons of God. I love it. We're all heirs. The word heir, by the way, is interesting. It's kleronomos. Kleronomos means one who has received his or her allotted portion by the right of sonship. So any lady who says, well, I don't want to be a son, well, then you're going to have to take that up with God because you're going to arrive in heaven, your inheritance ready, and if you say, I don't want to be a son, He'll say to you, well, but but this is your provision of sonship. I'm giving to you, this to you as, a, as, as I would to any son. No, I don't want it. Because I define myself as a marching woman. <laughs> Okay, but, but you're a son by faith in Jesus Christ. And all of this happened because the Son of God came in the fullness of time. And by the way, speaking of the fullness of time, there's another fullness of time about to take place. It's called the times of the Gentiles. Luke 21-24, Jesus said Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the times of the Gentiles until the time, or by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Paul said a, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. So we're coming to the next fullness of time. We are close to it. And what's going to happen then? Well, I'm going to jump ahead to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, which said, He made known to us all the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Jesus with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness 
of the times. That is, and then Paul explains his big sentence, the fullness of the time. What do you mean, Paul? The summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on earth. And so what happened for Zelophehad's daughters, what happens now at the cross as we are offered this spirit of sonship, male, female, matters not. In Jesus we all have the spirit of sonship, the spirit of the Son in us, and this anticipates the fullness of the time when the presence of Jesus comes down. And we're all sons. Praise God. Verse 8. Galatians 4.8 However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those things which were by nature no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, I love the, the, the turnaround there. Well, I know God. No, no. God knows you, which is the only reason you know God. He made the first move. Or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and years and seasons. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. What's he talking about here? Days and months and seasons and years. He's talking about the feasts and the festivals and the observances of Israel, which now have been put on the churches in Galatia by those legalistic religionists. By the agitators, who now are saying, wait a minute, you didn't keep Passover this year? Oh, you got to keep Passover. Oh yeah, and Shavuot. Make sure you, you, you do Feast of Unleavened Bread right after Passover. you got to take care of that. What are you guys thinking? And, and Yom Kippur, absolutely. You know, Rosh Hashanah, all the, the... We'll give you a list and you just need to start doing this. And so the untaught or unskilled Galatians are going, uh, uh, okay, uh, okay. We'll keep that day too. Can you get us a calendar? Can you get us a Jewish calendar? Because we don't even know what the months are. And they start freaking out. And Paul calls them on it. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And I will tell you right here, all of those in Christ Jesus, don't ever let another Christian come up to you and tell you one day is more important than the next. Paul says in Romans, each man, Romans 14, each must be convinced in your own mind. I mean, if you want to keep a day, keep a day, but don't put it on someone else. Because we are no longer under that heavy-handed guardianship that says you must do certain things to get there. Now the Spirit does the work. So Paul says this. He says all these things, these Festivals and new moons and Sabbath days. Colossians 2.17, he says, Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. If you're in a relationship with Christ Jesus, why are you keeping Passover? Christ is our Passover. If you want to observe a Passover Seder, that's great. They're wonderful. They're fun. They're informative. They are instructional. We're going to do one this year, as I told you. But don't do it because, oh, I have to. If I miss it, I'm in sin. No, you're not. Because that's just the the shadow of the substance, which is Christ. Paul says, look, you all, you're going backwards here. You're going back to elementary school. Notice the use of the word. Why are you turning back to weak and worthless, verse 9, elemental things? You are graduates of grace. And you're going back to grade school. 
or first grader, or junior first, whatever it takes. i got to get over that. Feast and Holy Days game, they are elementary because they were given simply to point to Jesus who is the substance. The word elementary there is stoichion, and it means the rudimentary things, basics. And Paul, I believe it was Paul, in Hebrews chapter 6 wrote, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let's press on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And people keep spinning out questions about those simple things. Paul says, that's basic. That's Christianity 101. I'm over here in 609. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's do something here. Let's grow. Let's mature in the Lord. Okay, well, that sounds good. How do we do that? How do we mature in faith? One word. Grace. By grace. Our maturity is by grace. The more we understand grace, the more we live by grace, the more we extend grace, the more mature we are becoming. Because it's through grace that we have been saved. Without it, we remain untaught, unskilled, childish grade schoolers. It's time to grow up. Paul says, when I was a child, 1 Corinthians 13, 11, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Verse 12. I beg of you, brethren, he says, become as I, for I also have become as you. Now, now stop right there. What, what are you saying, Paul? He's saying become a people of grace. Don't go backwards. Let's get back on track with this grace. Become like me, a person of grace, even as I, a Jew, have come out from under the law and have become like you Gentiles. So you guys weren't under law, so now I'm kind of like you. But now you're under grace, so you're like me. Let's, let's all walk this road together, this road of grace. And then he says, now you've done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Man, do you remember when I was sick among you and how you took such great care of me? You loved me, you accepted me, you received me. Paul, is he's remembering this. And he's, so he's trying to make, make clear to them, though he's called them foolish Galatians, and he's kind of gotten on their case a little bit in the letter so far. He's saying, now listen, this is not a problem between you and me. This is not a conflict that, that, that we have. I kind of wonder if his letter to the Corinthian church was still on his mind, <laughs> which was a letter of some conflict, you know. But he's saying, no, we're we're good, don't you remember? And then he says in verse 15, Where then is that sense of blessing that you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Now, right there, Paul is appealing to personal relationship. As it was when he first came into Galatia and was so sick. 
When we studied Acts, when we studied 2 Corinthians, we talked about this. this. This is probably a reference to his thorn in the flesh. And some tie that together. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh. I remember studying that recently. And some think, well, that, that's what he meant when he got so sick in Galatia. And he's talking about, interestingly, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So people think, well, perhaps the thorn in the flesh was near blindness. Perhaps that along with what Paul says at the end of the Galatian letter, chapter 6, verse 11, see with what large letters I'm writing to you in my own hand. These are all clues that we put together and think, Paul had eye trouble. You know, Paul struggled to, to see. And what's apparent to me in the way Paul writes this is that Paul was kept in Galatia longer than Paul had planned. Because of this illness. That the missionary journey planned, the itinerary was to head through the cities, hit city, hit another city, hit another city, bring the gospel, teach it, plant a church, move on, bring the gospel, and move on. But Paul gets really sick and ends up stuck in Galatia because of this illness for a long, long period of time. Look again at verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. Interesting, it was because of the bodily illness. In other words, had Paul not been sick, would he even have stopped to preach the gospel? Was it even on the itinerary to go into Lystra at all, or Iconium, or Pisidian Antioch, or any of the places that he visited? Were there certain towns he wouldn't have gone to in Galatia had he not gotten sick? And what I'm getting at is this. I highly doubt that Paul prayed, Lord, we're going out on this missionary journey and I am praying, I'm asking that you grant me a serious enough disease to give me Coke bottle glasses. That would be great. When was the last time you prayed, Father, make me really sick? Lord, to the point of near blindness, that'd be cool, and then use it. That's not how we pray. And yet, here's the thing. While Paul didn't ask for this illness, for this perhaps blindness, Paul could still see its value. He understood its worth. If I hadn't been sick, I wouldn't have had this time to preach the gospel to you in Galatia. Now in a teaching I gave a month or so ago, I think it was, back in 2 Corinthians 12, we talked about thorny revelations. You remember that, some of you? You don't even remember Sunday. How are you going to remember this? But thorny revelation. And what we talked about in that teaching was we saw how thorns in the flesh can do several things in our lives. How God uses those thorns in the flesh in our lives to sanctify us. And we looked at, I think, four, four or five different things. But here's one that I would add to the list. That a thorn in the flesh, an illness, a disease, a problem, a pain in your life, in my life may not have anything to do with me whatsoever. In fact, it may be opening up opportunity for the gospel. I might get really sick that I might be able to preach in the hospital. And some of you have. I might have some serious accident that allows me to glorify God in the healing process in a way that I could not have done otherwise. And I think of Gary and Eileen Riggs. 
When we hurt, when we are in pain, when there's a thorn in the flesh or a spike in the side, perhaps sometimes it has absolutely nothing to do with you at all, but the gospel is proclaimed because of you going through that pain. And I guarantee you into eternity you'd look back and say, I'd do it all over. I would go through the, I would spend the same amount of time in ICU if the gospel could be preached like that again. And I think it's getting out of our heads long enough to realize God is making all kinds of opportunities for the gospel if we will not be selfish with our receipt of the truth. Paul said in Ephesians 5.15, Therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Make that practical. Paul was careful how he walked. I'm sick, I'm in bed, I'm stuck in Galatia. Somebody bring me a Bible. (laughs) Bring me a scroll of Isaiah. Gather some people around here in the bedroom. While I'm lying here, I can at least talk about Jesus. And so he did. He opened it up. Now, Paul also says, make the most of the time because the days are evil. That's Ephesians 5.16. I find that word evil interesting. The days are evil. It's the word poneros, and it means wicked, but it also means full of hardship, labor, and yes, even disease. The days are diseased. Feeling sick, in pain, having problems in your life, use it for the gospel. Because that thorn in your flesh may simply be an opportunity to preach the truth. And that's why back in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, Paul said, Therefore I am well content with weakness, and with insults, and with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, the question with Paul's ailment here, or your problem, it's not, why are you allowing this, Lord? Instead, how about, how do you want to use this, Lord? How is this pain in my life a preaching of the gospel in somebody else's? Well, verse 17, verse 16, Paul says, So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? No, 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 that's not what's going on here, guys. Verse 17, then he says, and watch this, They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. Now now listen one more time, because Paul just described something and we have a phrase for it. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. And our phrase for that is passive-aggressive. That is exactly what a passive-aggressive person does. They come along, they go after you, and then as soon as they, you warm up to them, they put you down so that you feel like you have to kowtow to them. And that's what these religious agitators were doing. The Jewish legalists were coming along, and Paul is exposing their head games right here. They come rushing in, they're going after Gentile believers to denigrate their faith to make them feel spiritually inferior and therefore to force them to come to the more superior Jewish Christians. But Paul turns this around. By the way, that's what flesh does. Flesh is always passive-aggressive. Flesh is always looking for what it can get. Flesh is always trying to make people feel inferior so that it feels more superior. And what Jesus had to say was this, Luke 9, 48... The one who is least among all of you, this is the one who's great. The one most inferior, that's the one Jesus is looking at and saying, all right, 
That's my son. That's my son. She's my son. He's my son. The inferior ones, the humble ones. So Paul then, he turns this statement around in verse 18 and says, Well, it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. In other words, I didn't guilt trip you into pursuing me. I pursued you. And it was the right thing to do. I came into Galatia bringing the gospel to you and not trying to force you to feel inferior so you'd come running to me. No, I came to you, and that's a good thing. Verse 19, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am I'm perplexed about you. I don't get it. I think I have said, verses 19 and 20, about my children. Any of you parents ever been perplexed by your kids? No, no, no. And you look at them and you're, and you're just laboring because you want to see Christ formed in them, but you see them choosing sometimes different directions. When we were praying out here, I said, I think there's a little prodigal in all of us. And we see that, so we're, we're perplexed. Well, that's Paul's feeling for Galatia, and you really hear the heart of the apostle here. I am in labor, man. I am I'm doubled over. I'm, I'm in the pangs of birth, says the Apostle, until Christ is formed or born in you. 1 Corinthians 4.15 I think parallels this kind of thinking when Paul says, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the Gospel. Paul said to Corinth, that's how much I care about you. He's saying to Galatia, I care so much for you. Understand, I am just aching for you to be formed after the image of Christ. That is my desire for you here. In 2 Corinthians 11.27, he says, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, without food and cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul had a father heart for the churches. Why? Because he knew the father heart of God. And, and it expressed, God the Father's heart expressed Himself through the Apostle. And He's feeling this. I want to see you fully birthed into the freedom of grace. And the reason Paul is upset at all in this letter is he's watching these people go backward into law. Back to their own bar mitzvahs, if you will. And I mean no, no offense to Jewish sensibility, but... Why be a son of the commandments when you could have the spirit of the son and all the freedom that comes with it? Now, verse 21, Paul says, Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? Okay, you want to talk about the law? Let's go back to the law. And he's talking about Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's Torah. That's the law when they say the law. Let's go back to the law. Let's, let's think about this. Let's, let's get to an allegory straight out of book one of the Torah, straight out of Genesis. And in verse 22 he says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, you know her name, Hagar, and one by the free woman. What's her name? Sarah. Hagar and Sarah. 
Two women, bondwoman and free woman. Verse 23, But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. The law is flesh. Christ is the promise. You know the story of Sarah and Hagar? It's a great story. And just to sum it up, Genesis 16, God tells Abraham, you're going to have a son. Abraham's like, all right, sounds good. But by age 86, things weren't looking so fruitful. Abraham's looking at Sarah. Sarah's looking at Abraham. And the two of them are thinking, this is not working out, this promise of God for for an heir, because Abraham originally thought, well, it's going to be Eliezer, my servant. I'm just going to have to pass on the inheritance to him because I don't have a son. Sarai was barren. And God says, no, no, you're going to have a son. I got you covered. So they look at each other. They think it through, unfortunately. And they take matters into their own hands. And Sarai provides Abram with a lovely little handmaid they picked up in Egypt named Hagar. Abraham, father of the faithful, while he was still Abram, he wasn't actually even called Abraham yet, but in Genesis 16 he goes in and he sleeps with Hagar. This is in your Bible. And she gets pregnant and produces the heir, Ishmael. And my friends, because of that decision, the fallout is still being felt across the Middle East today. The hatred of Jew from the line of Isaac and Arab from the line of Ishmael. So you understand that the, that the Arabic people come from Ishmael and from Esau, who married a daughter of Ishmael. So that whole line is, is Ishmael and Esau. That's where the Arabic people come from. And then the Jewish people from Isaac. But they all come track back to Abraham. So there is a kinship there, but it's a brutal family feud that has gone on for millennia. Because Abraham and Sarah said, well, God told us he's going to do this, so let's make it happen. Bad, bad plan. If God ever tells you He's going to do something, don't you go make it happen. You let God show you. You go in His time. The same thing in Joshua when the people came in and they conquered Jericho and God says, you're going to take the land of Canaan. So they said, fantastic. God said, we're going to do it. Let's go charge up against AI. And they did. And they were routed. Because they didn't bother to ask God, is now the time you want us to charge up against AI? They didn't know there was sin in the camp. It's it's another story for another time. But the fallout of our choices can be felt by generation upon generation. Ishmael, father of the Arabic people, listen to what the Bible says prophetically of this people group. And no offense to those who have Arab lineage, because there are Arab Christians all over the world, brothers and sisters of ours, sons. But this is what the Bible says, Genesis 16, 12. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And by the way, if Israel was not in the Middle East today, there would be as much fighting, feuding, and warring as there is right now. There was before Israel. Clan warfare, tribal warfare. Genesis 25.18 says, The sons of Ishmael settled in defiance of all his relatives. They're all up for a fight. Genesis 27.40 By your sword you shall live and your brother you shall serve. Did you hear the recent thing? The threats coming out of the Middle East 
specifically Hamas, saying if President Donald Trump moves the embassy, the U.S. embassy, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, all hell will break loose. The violence will increase. Well, that's what Hamas does, so big surprise there. And if a lot of it is is just the blowhard talk of those who are opposed to Israel, and by the way, I am praying, I for one am praying that President Trump moves our embassy to the holy city of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Why, Rick, you a warmonger? No, I just believe that Jerusalem is God's city and I'd like to recognize that. But it's fiery talk and rhetoric. And by the way, as we look at this, that, that son of the bondwoman, the son of Hagar, that is the flesh. It's the picture of the flesh. Born of impatient Abram and Sarai, getting out ahead of God, and disaster comes in its wake. And as we talked about Sunday, all flesh can do is produce more flesh. Fleshly thinking produces more fleshly thinking. Fleshly behavior produces more fleshly behavior. On the other hand, the fruit of the Spirit is patience. That's the fourth variety. We'll get into the whole list in a week or so. Patience is the fruit of the Spirit. Patience is willing to wait on the Lord. Oh, Rick, you're on that wait thing again. You always talk about that wait thing. That's because I need it so desperately in my own life. Waiting. And Abram and Sarah did not wait. Psalm 25, verse 3 says, Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Psalm 25, verse 5, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I will wait all the day. And Psalm 25, 21, Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. So back to the story. So Hagar, Abram, they sleep together. Hagar gets pregnant. And the moment Hagar gets pregnant, she's strutting her stuff. She's walking around the house going, yeah, I'm the pregnant gal here. Sorry, Sarah, you're still all dried up, but I'm the pregnant one. Check me out. Mm -hmm." And Sarah sees this and says, that's it, she's out. Abram, I want her gone. What could he do? He kicks her out. She goes out in the desert. God goes and finds her and says, no, no, I got it. I got you covered. Brings her back in. And Ishmael is born to Hagar. Thirteen years go by between Genesis 16 and Genesis 17. And the Lord comes to Abram and now renames him Abraham and establishes with him the covenant of circumcision. Ishmael is 13 years old. Abraham and Ishmael and all the servants of the house, bummer for them, get circumcised. You know, the covenant now has begun. And God reminds Abraham of his promise to give him an heir. What does Abraham say? Genesis 17, I'll just read this to you. God says to Abram, Genesis 17, 15, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai anymore, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. I'll bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he said in his heart, remember the 13 years ago have gone by. He's 99 years old now. I'm going to make you a daddy. 
That's hilarious. Then he said, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who's 90, bear a child? Translation, God, have you seen my wife? And then Abram said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Translation, oh God, please bless the work of my hands. Oh God, come and work in my life. Make my plans work. No, no. God said, nope. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac, which means little laughing boy. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. I'll bless him. I'll make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. Abram didn't have any idea what a tragedy that would be. He shall become the father of twelve princes. I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Abram, when you're a hundred years old, she's ninety-one. She's going to have this son, Isaac. The story is remarkable. A year later, you know Isaac was born. Laughter (laughs) filled the house. And it was something the flesh could not do. And back to the allegory now. This was something the flesh could not do. The work through the bondwoman was the work of the flesh. The work through the free woman was something only God could accomplish. And here's the deal. Listen to me on this. Isaac was birthed by the Spirit. I'll prove it to you in just a second. Verse 24 of Galatians 4. Paul says, this is allegorically speaking. These women are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves and she is Hagar. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. What are you talking about, Lord? From Sinai? No, no, no. No, say from Edom. You know, that's where the Arabs, they would come from there. Or, or you know, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Syria. No, no, because Sinai, that's our place. That's where the law came from. Exactly. Exactly. This is shocking, what Paul is writing here. The one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves, she is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. I mean, honestly, I'm not Jewish and I'm a little offended at what Paul just said. Because in this topology, the people of Israel are compared to an Egyptian. Hagar. You you see how weird that is? They came out of Egypt. Out from under bondage. They were delivered to be a free people under God. And now Paul's saying, yeah, they're like Hagar. It's like they've gone right back into Egypt. I thought they were supposed to be free. No. Israel became a picture of slavery. Why? Because now they were indebted to keeping law. Now God's not done with His chosen people. Remember this. He chose them before the law was given and He has chosen them for a wonderful kingdom after the law is given. But right now, even today, Jerusalem today is under law. Jerusalem today is a picture of Hagar the bond woman. Oh, one thing I want to tell you real quickly. Note this. Paul says something very interesting for those of you into geography. 
and trying to figure out where Mount Sinai is? He says Mount Sinai, this Hagar is Mount Sinai, verse 25, in where? Arabia. In Arabia. Not in Egypt. Not in the Sinai Peninsula, which is the traditional location, but on the eastern shore of the Red Sea in Saudi Arabia today. That's where Mount Sinai was. That was Midian. That was where Moses was a shepherd for 40 years before going back to Egypt. He led them right back into Midian on the other side. So note that and think that through. If you're looking into the geography of the Red Sea crossing, where did they cross and and where did they go and where did they end up at the Mount of God in Midian, Saudi Arabia, across the Red Sea. Alright, so Paul knew exactly where that was, you know. Galatians 1.17, he said, I went and spent time in Arabia. So he he knows what he's talking about. Present Jerusalem, with the temple, with the law, enslaved like the Egyptian Hagar, and still is. Still is. And you can almost hear a distant echo of Jesus when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And that is the Hagar in this allegorical picture. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. She's our mother. Now this is a reference in the picture. Sarah would be a picture of the free woman, of the free Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, the Jerusalem, Revelation 21, that John sees coming down from heaven prepared as a bride. This speaks of freedom, gang. For it is written, verse 27, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. I have that circled. You might want to circle that in your Bibles. Not in labor. Because grace is not in labor. Sons of God are not in labor. We don't work at it. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. He quotes Isaiah 54 and verse 1. And he said, and you brethren, verse 28, are like Isaac, are children of promise. Not in labor, but in grace. Children of laughter. Isaac's name means laughter. Wait a minute. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. There's joy in this. There's not joy in law keeping. It's too heavy. But there is joy in grace. There's joy in freedom. Verse 29, but as at that time, He who was born according to the flesh, that is Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, and that is Isaac. So it is now also. And there it is. Isaac was born according to the Spirit. Now, not like Jesus. Obviously, Jesus' virgin birth, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and Jesus was born of woman, but not of woman and man. Isaac was born of the seed of Abraham, Planted in Sarah, so a human father, a human mother, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, her womb was brought to life. And the child was birthed to this old woman and this old man. And they, they had Isaac. 
by the power of the Spirit. And it's a beautiful picture because it reminds me of just how you and how I was born again. We were born again. Having begun by the Spirit. Galatians 3.3 Are you now being perfected by the flesh? You began like Isaac. Are you now going to be like Ishmael? Man of the flesh or man of the Spirit? Son of the flesh or son of the Spirit? Which one of them is going to have control in your life and power in your life to help you in the sanctification process? And as we talked about Sunday, and I can't, I can't say this enough, we're trying too hard when we're striving in the flesh. We have got to invite the Spirit of God into our lives, into our struggles, into our faith. you got a sin problem in your life that's big and heavy and you're dealing with, invite the Spirit in. Father, Holy Spirit, I need Your power to overcome this because I'm not any good on my own. Don't work the problem. Invite the Spirit into the problem. Now, Genesis 21 describes exactly what he says in verse 29, that he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. Genesis 21, we see Ishmael mocking Isaac. And the old rabbis think it was more than mocking. The rabbis say he sinned against Isaac. There's something in the tradition, and I don't know what it is beyond that, but something that implies that Ishmael sinned against little Isaac. To the point that Sarah said, that is it, I've had it, that's enough. And she says, I want Hagar and Ishmael out. Out of the house, out of town, get rid of them, boot them out. I want you to heave Hagar. And listen, listen, it was the right thing to do. Look at verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Genesis 21 verse 10, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Now we can argue all day long as to whether or not Sarah, as the mother of Isaac, had the right to boot out Hagar and how unfair that was and causing a homeless problem right there and how unjust it was. That's not the point. The point is, when it comes to you and me, as people with the Spirit of the Son, cast out the bondwoman. Get rid of the law. Stop living by religion. Don't be burdened by tradition. You are free people in Jesus Christ. And the allegory is a beautiful picture of our freedom in Jesus. As those who were born of the Spirit, not born of the law. Cast out the bondwoman, get rid of the law. But for all this beautiful allegory, there's a literal truth here, and we'll end with this. The father, the father determined that his line of grace, this lineage of grace, would be traced not through Hagar to Ishmael. And by the way, Genesis 16 through 21, completely in its writing, blows away the idea that Ishmael was a legitimate son of Abraham. In fact, in Genesis 22, when Abraham takes Isaac to the mountain, Moriah, for sacrifice, do you remember what God says to him at the beginning of that chapter? He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Now he knows he had Ishmael. 
But God only recognized Isaac as the legitimate heir. Now follow it through. Abraham, you're going to have a son by Sarah, not by Hagar, by the free woman, your wife, who will be Isaac. Isaac's going to have a son too, isn't he? A couple of them, Jacob and Esau. And through Jacob, there would then be 12 sons. Among those 12 sons, there was a son named Judah. Judah had sons after him, and the lineage continues down. The lineage of Judah hits David. David had sons, right? He had a son named Natan, had another son named Solomon, both of whom are in the genealogy. But what's interesting, when you read the genealogy that I'm talking about, it starts from Abraham and runs all the way down to Messiah. In that genealogy, Jacob, Isaac, Judah, David, you know who's included in that lineage of sons? Something you never do? Tamar. Rahab. Ruth, Bathsheba. In these 42 generations from Abraham to in the fullness of times, Jesus. The sons. And that's always been God's plan. And it was Jesus who said, brothers, sisters, Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And so that's it. We are all sons of God through faith. In Jesus Christ our Lord. That's sonship. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing story and what a profound inheritance. I pray, Father, for all of my sisters tonight that each would walk out of here with heads held high and elevated understanding their position of inheritance knowing how loved, how beloved they are by their Father. And recognizing this truth, that every woman among us who has claimed Jesus Christ as Lord has been given the Spirit of the Son and Lord has sonship. And that every man among us who has chosen Jesus Christ, we also have the Spirit of the Son. Father, we praise You for Your Sonship. We praise You and thank You. We thank You ahead of time for an inheritance that we've only begun to understand. An inheritance that will fill us so full of worship that as we prayed earlier, we will be worshiping on into eternity. Thank You. Thank You for the Spirit of Sonship. And I ask, Lord, only that You would continue to pour out Your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Your Son Jesus, on us as a fellowship. Deepen our intimacy our faith, and our trust in You. In Jesus' name, Amen.